Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. We pray that as we open it up and as we study it together this morning, that you might be, your will might be made clearer, that you might be glorified, that we might be edified. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt like you don't belong? From a young age, we actually learn to ask ourselves this question. Our childhood joys and traumas are defined by a sense of whether or not we fit in. Does the place we're in feel like home? Does it feel foreign? Do the people around us feel like neighbors and friends? Or do they feel like enemies? Do we belong? If you moved around a lot as a child, you might have struggled with this question. If you immigrated to this country, you almost certainly wondered whether you belonged, at least for a time. Being in a new place is disconcerting. It's uncomfortable. Well, now let's take the most extreme example of that, a forced move, when people have to relocate against their own will. Around the world, this is known as forced migration or forced displacement. But there's another word for it, an older word, exile. Exile has many flavors, but the common denominator is misery. We see it in history. The transatlantic slave trade was a type of exile. It uprooted over 10 million Africans from their homes and scattered them across the globe. Those first kidnapped slaves would have felt a sense of disorientation that is almost unimaginable. And their descendants, who include many of the people in this room, who include my wife and two sons, still struggle generations later with the question, do I belong here? But we also see exile happening right now. In recent years, there's been civil war in Syria and the Middle East. In the intensity and brutality of that conflict, it's estimated that over five million Syrians have fled their homes and have fled the country. There are populations of over a thousand Syrian refugees in nearly 50 different countries, each asking the question, do I belong here? I could go on and on. Native Americans and indigenous and aboriginal peoples around the world are all exiles, kicked off the land they were inhabiting, often slaughtered en masse, with the remnant forced onto tiny reservations that the invading colonists didn't want for themselves. And there are people groups the world over, the Hmong in Asia, the Kurds in the Middle East, even the Irish in the United Kingdom, who are made to feel like exiles in their own ancient homelands. Each of them faces that same question, do I belong here? Displacement like this is common throughout this world, and it's common throughout our history. Its effects are traumatic, and they're long-lasting. Just to take one example and a phrase I'm going to borrow for this sermon, today, the seven million Palestinian refugees and their descendants who had to leave their homes 70 years ago still refer to that day. They still refer to that day, May 15, 1948, as the Nakba, which is Arabic for disaster. The question I want to ask us all today is this. 
Is the Nakba, the disaster of exile, is it limited only to displaced people, to physically displaced people? If you're not directly affected by it, is it some faraway thing, maybe a challenge to help others overcome, but not something that concerns you directly? Or does the experience of exile have something to teach us all? Put another way, do any of us belong in this world? And if we don't, what are we to do about it? This question of exile is at the center of our passage this morning. Turn with me now, if you will, to Psalm 137. For those of you who are providing the Bibles here in church, and you saw the gentleman come around with them, you can wave your hand if you missed it the first time. But for those of you using those Bibles, you'll find it on page 521. And as you're turning there, I'll share a little bit of the history and context around the psalm. So in some versions, this psalm is called the Lament of the Exiles. It takes place in the midst of one of the most infamous exiles in history, the Babylonian captivity of Israel. So the history in brief, after the time of Moses and Joshua, Israel establishes itself in the promised land. Eventually, a king is anointed, Saul, and then David, and then Solomon. This is a high point for the kingdom of Israel. But as we know, it's mostly downhill from there. Over the next 500 years or so, Israel falls into sin, and as a result, the kingdom itself declines. Eventually, it splits into two kingdoms with a series of mostly terrible rulers. The northern kingdom is conquered by outsiders in 722 BC. And then, in 587 and 586 BC, the southern kingdom falls. Its capital, Jerusalem, is taken over and destroyed by the Babylonians. The vast majority of the population is deported, forcibly brought to Babylon, which in the modern day is Iraq, brought to Babylon where they lived lives as subjects of that empire. So this is why the exiles called the Babylonian captivity. A whole nation has been taken captive and kidnapped from its home. This exile would last 70 years, until Babylon fell to the Persian Empire. And the new Persian ruler allowed the remaining Israelites to begin to return to Jerusalem. So this psalm was written, you can see the call out there, was written in the post-exilic period. What they call, it's called the post-exilic period, after the exile. And in it, the remnant of Israel is recalling the trauma of the exile itself. So let's read God's word together now. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. 
Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. You can see here the emotion, the grief, the sense of loss, the desperation that this exile brought. Here is the main point I want to make about this passage today. Being in exile is a fundamental part of what it means to be one of God's people. I'll say that once again. Being in exile and everything that comes with it is a fundamental part of what it means to be one of God's people. So the question that raises for us is, how should an exile live? So I have three things to say about this, which we'll cover during the remainder of our time together. How should an exile live? First, we should mourn our exile. You'll find that in verses 1 to 4. Second, we should persevere through our exile, verses 4 to 6. And third and finally, we should trust God and God alone to end our exile. You'll find that in verses 7 to 9. And I pray as we dig in that the Lord um, would open our eyes to the truth revealed in His Word. So let's start with that first point. To live in exile well, we must first mourn our exile. Let's read verses 1 to 4 one more time. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Here the Israelites are clearly remembering their captivity in Babylon. Look at verse 1. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, which is to say when they remembered Jerusalem, their former capital city, the city that had been destroyed. Then see what they say there in verse 2. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. Look at the image there. On the willows, that is to say on the willow trees, they're hanging up their lyres. A lyre uh, is a, I had to look it up, is a kind of musical instrument used to accompany songs. It's kind of like an ancient harp. So what does it mean that they hung up their lyres on these willow trees? Well, the next verse tells us, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. What's going on here? Well, imagine the scene for a moment. The Babylonians have utterly conquered Israel. They've transported the Israelites to a foreign land. If you're a conquering people seeking to demonstrate your complete control of the conquered, well, how might you do that? One thing you might do is force them to perform for you, to sing, to dance. Perhaps to take those very songs that were meant for worshiping the Lord and to twist them so that the merriment is hollowed out from them, so that they are stripped of their original joyful meaning. Dance for me, they might demand. Sing for me. Sing one of the songs of Zion. It's almost as if they're mocking the very Lord those songs were meant for. No, no, it's not almost if. It is exactly that. They are essentially saying, sing to your Lord for our entertainment. He will not come to save you. So now we can see why they hung up their lyres on the willows. In what was perhaps the only act of defiance they could muster, they would not sing. Instead, they would weep. They would lament. Verse 4 is their answer. 
How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? It is a rhetorical question. How can I sing a song of joy when things are so terrible? Now, let me be clear about what they are not saying. They're not saying, how can I worship the Lord in a foreign land or when things are bad? As we know, you can worship the Lord anywhere, in any circumstance. What they are saying is they cannot be a part of a charade that their captors, that the Babylonians demand of them. They cannot perform and pretend that everything is all right. No, the proper posture of the Israelites in the midst of their own Nakba, in the midst of their own disaster, is to weep, to grieve. And let me suggest something here. What we're seeing from Israelites in this moment is an example of godly grief. So the entire book of Lamentations gives us a more detailed, zoomed-in image of what this looks like. So let's turn back to that passage that Terence read for us this morning. Lamentations chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. It's on page 685 of the Bibles that you all have. I'm not going to reread it. Um, I just want to point out a few of the things that are there that Terence read for us this morning. Notice what's here. Powerful, sad imagery. Even that very first line, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. There's a lifetime of sadness in that line. Imagine a center of worship, once a testament to God's relationship with His people, glittering with gold and treasures stacked up to build the temple. Jerusalem, the city, was the crown jewel of God's people. We see this in verse 7. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. Now, imagine all of that gone. The temple raised to the ground. The treasures looted and carried away. The streets empty. The figurative tumbleweed blowing by. The land desolate. To have something precious, to lose it, and then to look back with longing on it, well, that is one of the most difficult things to deal with in all of human experience. But it's not just loss. It's also confession. Israel knows why this happened. Look at verse 5. The Lord has afflicted her, afflicted Jerusalem, for the multitude of her transgressions. Verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her. And then look at verse 12. Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger. This, this Nakba, this disaster, was an act of judgment against Israel, and Israel knows it. Lament is uncomfortable. It confronts hard facts. It refuses to turn away from them. It sees clearly the root cause, the fallenness of our world, and it confesses the part that we have to play in it. And at least in the short term, it has no easy resolution. I said before that we should mourn our exile. Why is doing this a good thing? Well, several weeks ago, our brother Matt Swanson kicked off this series and I should note, he forced the rest of us who are preaching this summer to raise our game. Thank you, Matt, wherever you are. Um, he kicked off the series with a masterful meditation on the neglected importance of lament in worship. 
If you haven't listened to the whole sermon, I would recommend that you do it this afternoon. But I'll just give you one quote that I think summarizes it well. Worshiping through lament brings us to a place of humility and allows us to appropriately grieve our sin and our circumstances to renew our trust and faith in God. So lament, then, is a form of godly grief. We see this described in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So godly grief, true conviction of sin, well, that's what makes salvation by God possible. So, Christians, how are we doing in our exercise of godly grief? This morning, you're bringing in with you any number of reasons for lament. Perhaps you're a mother struggling with anxiety. Perhaps you're having trouble doing well at work or having trouble finding work and making ends meet. Perhaps a clear and acute tragedy has befallen you, the loss of a loved one, an act of violence, a sexual assault. Perhaps it's one step removed from that. You see great injustice against others. You see the proverbial conquerors gloating over the conquered, as the Babylonians did over the Israelites, and it grieves you to see. Here's the thing to understand. The very fallenness of this world is our own exile. The fallenness of this world is our own exile. Think about the very beginning of Genesis. God placed his people where? In paradise, in the Garden of Eden. And when they sinned, what did he do? He cast them out. He banished them. He exiled them. Life, ever since the fall, separated from God, has been one long exile. And we can fundamentally trace every bad thing in the world to that fall, to our sinfulness. So what are we to do with that? Here are, um, well, no particular order, four thoughts on how to grieve well, how to mourn our exile well. First, don't be ashamed of your grief. As you can see here, it's a common experience of God's people. Don't let pride or some sense that to feel sad is ungodly keep you from expressing your sorrow and being vulnerable to others. Look at the verses. Look at how raw and exposed and desperate the cries of the Israelites are. It's almost like they took whatever you see on Instagram and said, give me the opposite of that. There's no shame in that. It's important that we be honest of ourselves about what's really going on. Resist the urge to simply put on a good face, to sing those songs insincerely, whether that's in social media or in real life. Cry out to God. Share your burden with others around you. But also, and second, don't wallow in your grief and don't be surprised by it. It is a natural, inevitable consequence of living in a world that is dying we are not entitled to that promotion. We're not entitled to that child or that marriage or any other good thing we might be desiring. We can pray for these things. We can rejoice when God occasionally gives, us, gives them to us in His mercy, but we should not expect them. If this world were all we had to live for, this might be a bleak picture indeed, one that inspires you to simply grab as much as you can and live in the moment, regardless of the consequences for others but we know that's not the case. I'll say a bit more about that a little later on. 
But here, my only point here is, we should not let the fallenness of the world overwhelm us. Instead, we should, third, number three, see clearly through to the root cause of your grief, our collective sinfulness, and confess your part in what makes this world fallen. Like the Israelites, we must confess why we are grieving. I don't mean that your sin directly caused every bad thing going on in your life or every bad thing that you see. What I do mean is that our sin, our rebellion against God, is the reason the world is the way it is. And when we see the amount of tragedy in and around our lives, we should be moved to confess that none of us are worthy to live in a world that is any other way. Finally, fourth, and for this reason, let your grief stir you to compassion. Think of John chapter 11. There, Martha and Mary's brother Lazarus has died, and Mary is with Jesus grieving. And we get Jesus' reaction to that grief in the shortest verse in the Bible. John chapter 11, verse 35. What is it? Jesus wept. He wept. He grieved. He grieved for those who died, like Lazarus, and those like Mary who suffered. This raises an important question for us. Do we grieve over the grief of others? Do we feel that kind of empathy? Our own church covenant binds us to bear the burdens and sorrows of our fellow church members. Do we do that? Does our circle of concern extend farther than that outside our church? Christians should be known as the most compassionate people on earth. For we see clearly that this whole world is in exile from God as the Israelites were. Our compassion should be radical. It should be unexpected. It should be held out for those who seem to deserve it the least because we know in our hearts that we are also undeserving. So, who are the undeserving people in your life? The undeserving people in your life. Who seems most unsympathetic to you? Is it the difficult coworker, the difficult boss, the family member or church member that you haven't reconciled with because it's their fault? Or maybe it's a whole group of people who are a step removed from you, a group you don't trust, a group you're suspicious of because of something you've heard about them or something you've read about them. Now here's the question. Would an observer be able to tell the difference between you and a non-Christian by the way you treat or talk about any of these people? Ask yourself, how do they suffer from the exile? What do they have in common with me? What would radical compassion toward them look like? We should let our grief stir us up to compassion. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, or you're wondering whether you're a Christian. Let me just say, we're really glad that you're here. Grateful that you're with us this morning. I wonder, do you ever get the sense that all's not quite right with the world that you see around you? That tragedy or death or sickness or injustice seem random or arbitrary or unfair? Are you tempted to explain it away, to hold to some sense that somehow... Defying the evidence of your own two eyes, everything is okay. Let me make a suggestion. Don't do that. Hold on to the thought. There's something not quite right with the world. 
The Bible tells us that that's because though we were made in God's image and made to live in perfect harmony with Him, we broke away from God way back in Genesis, just as I was saying. The result is this exile, an exile that we're living with and somehow have to deal with. Don't pretend you're not in exile. When you get uncomfortable with the world you live in, that is God talking to you and trying to get you to pay attention. I'll say more about why he might do this in just a little bit. So, first overall thing, we should be attentive to the realities of this world. We should mourn our exile. However, to mourn is not to give in to despair. That's why, number two, we must persevere through our exile. We must persevere through our exile. Let's look now at verses 4 through 6. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So verse 4 is a hinge point here. It is the rhetorical answer to the Babylonians' request for songs. The Babylonians say, sing us some songs. And the Israelites reply, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Then what are verses 5 and 6? Verses 5 and 6 are a vow. They are an oath. So an oath is often structured this way. I promise to do something or not to do something. And if I break that promise, may something really bad happen to me. So you can see that structure here, right? What's the promise? I promise not to forget you, Jerusalem. I promise not to betray you by singing these songs that my captors demand. Indeed, I promise to set Jerusalem, which represents my right relationship with God, above all other things. Now, that's part one of the oath. What's part two? What's the bad thing that's going to happen to me if I don't keep my promise? Well, you see it right there. If I forget Jerusalem, may two things happen. First, may my right hand forget its skill. In other words, may the right hand that I use to play the song be unable to play. And second, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. In other words, may the tongue I would use to sing the song be rendered useless. So this is the promise to God. No matter how bad things get, no matter how unbearable the pressure becomes, no matter how much my tormentor torments me, I will not forget you, God. I will not cease to worship you. No matter how bad things get. Now imagine how bad they must have gotten. Imagine the pressure that these captives must have felt. Sing us one of the songs of Zion, they might say. Forget your God, if only for a little bit, and the beatings will stop. You'll be let out of prison, given enough food to keep from being hungry all day. Or maybe it wasn't the stick, maybe it was the carrot. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Forget your God, if only for a little bit, and we'll give you more rights and privileges. Maybe we'll put you in charge of some of your fellow Israelites. We'll give you a position of authority over them and under us. Maybe we'll give you a more comfortable life, a house, a spouse, a children in this new and foreign land. Forget your God, and you can leave all memory of your past trauma behind. Live with us. Be with us. Become one of us, they might have said. 
It's not unlike the call that sin makes to us today. Forget your God, if only for a little bit, and I'll make the pain go away. Give in to that addiction. I will drown your pain with pleasure. Forget your God. Cut that one corner. Be just a little dishonest in your dealings, and I'll help you get ahead in the moment when it matters. Forget your God. Learn to take advantage of others. Learn to promote yourself. I will give you fame and recognition. Forget your God. Learn to love comfort, and I will make you comfortable. Learn to love riches, and I will make you rich. Learn to love the world, and I will make you worldly. Sin's aim is to seduce us, and it is seductive. But the only answer a Christian can give is the one the psalmist gives here. No! If I forget you, O Jerusalem, if I am seduced by this foreign land that I'm in, if I sing that song, may I be silenced forever. The Christian might remember Jesus' words and make a similar promise. If my right hand causes me to sin, may I cut it off before, uh, before I sin. If my right eye causes me to sin, may I tear it out and throw it away before I betray my God. Make no mistake. Every day lived in exile is a day lived as a prisoner of war. Your captors will try to make you forget that. The world will try to make you forget where you came from and who you belong to. We must be ready for this. We must persevere, saying to God, may I never forget you. May I place you above my highest joy. If you're not a Christian, I wonder... Does this idea of persevering, of fighting a spiritual war, does that seem crazy to you? Does this type of self-denial seem strange? Is it easier to take the path of least resistance, to follow your heart as we often hear, and do whatever feels right to you? Now, I'm not judging you if you feel this way. If I didn't believe the Bible was true, I'd be right there with you. I'd say, well, the best standard I can think of is what seems to be right to me, so that's what I'll try to do. That's what I did before I was a Christian. But I do believe that the Bible is true. And the Bible tells us that simply giving in to this instinct leads to our destruction, that living by our own standard means ignoring God's standard, and that our separation from God and our exile from Eden is only a prelude to a final separation, the judgment of hell. Moreover, the Bible tells us that the world conspires every day to blind us to this truth. In fact, the metaphor the Bible frequently uses to describe those who are not saved is the metaphor of blindness. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 describes it well. The God of this world, that is Satan, so the God of this world is sort of a biblical term for Satan, the God of this world, he has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And if you read about the ministry of Jesus, you'll see that he himself speaks of his mission as being to open the eyes of the blind. So, do you think you might be blind? And if you were, how would you know? I know that seems obvious, right? I'm blind or I'm not, duh. But imagine being born blind. 
Imagine never knowing what it's like to see. Unless someone told you, would you even know what you were missing? What if that's what's going on with you right now? All right, well, cards on the table. I am telling you, you were born blind. We all were. And if what I'm saying here makes you a little bit uncomfortable, I beg you, don't ignore that feeling. It very well may be God trying to open your eyes just a little bit and let in the first light you've ever seen. During our exile, our captors in this world want to seduce us, they want to entrap us in the world, and they want to blind us to the fact that that's what they're doing. It is gaslighting on a cosmic scale. So we must persevere in our exile. We must remember the God to whom we belong. One thing that helps us to do that is the knowledge that God will bring our exile to an end one day. And that brings us to the third thing we have to say today. First, we must mourn our exile. Second, we must persevere through our exile. Third, and finally, we must trust God and God alone to end our exile. Now, this may not be immediately evident from the text. Follow with me, and we'll see how we get there. Here in verses 7 to 9, the tone changes. The psalmist shifts from telling the story of this lament, that's verses 1 to 4, and making a vow to remember Jerusalem, that's verses 5 and 6. The psalmist turns his attention to the enemy that did this to Israel, and the result is a series of curses. So first, verse 7. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. This is a curse against the Edomites. Now, the Edomites, you may have noticed, are not the Babylonians. But they are a traditional enemy of Israel. So what did they do that day? Well, apparently, according to verse 7, they gloated and cheered on the Babylonians. No? Tear it down. Tear down the whole city. The psalmist addresses the Lord there, and he says, remember them. Remember their wickedness. Remember what they did that day. The implication being, remember when it's time to judge. But it's verses 8 to 9 that are the climax of this psalm. Let's read them. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. So, this is the moment that I think a lot of you have been waiting for. I know Peter's been waiting for it. A lot have been asking me about it in the last few weeks. Um, here's the place where we have to pause and catch our breath, and we have to consider the gravity of these words. Here's the psalmist saying first that whoever does to Babylon what Babylon did to them will be blessed. Right? Then he gets more specific. Blessed will be the one who takes Babylon's little ones, that is, the one who takes Babylon's infants and dashes them against the rock. Blessed is the one who kills infants? Blessed is the one who kills them this violently, this vividly, by dashing them against the rock? If you're human, you can't read this verse and not question everything about it. How could the Bible endorse such a thing? How can this in any way be a model for what we think or what we pray? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you deserve an honest answer 
to these questions. And if you're a Christian, well, let's admit it, you deserve an honest answer too. If we're not careful, this can feel a little like the fine print that we never read, never signed up for when we accepted Christ into our lives. But what I hope to show here is that these verses are not just consistent with the character of a good God, but essential to it. So, what are we to make of this curse? Here are five things we must remember, and I promise this is my last list. Five things we must remember. Number one, the psalmist is wishing upon the Babylonians the same thing the Babylonians did to them. This is a practice that was common after military conquest in the ancient world, pillaging, brutal things happening. This is made explicit in verse 8, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. The Babylonians have committed a serious crime, and a serious crime cries out for serious judgment. Number two, the psalmist is wishing not for personal vengeance, but justice from God. So we can see that the psalmist knows this. How do we see it? Because they're not praying for a chance to carry out the deed themselves. They're not saying, let me go do this. No, what do they say? Look at verse 8. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. They know that the instrument of God's judgment will be determined by God and not by them. Also, side note, they already know that Babylon is doomed. There are many prophecies from the period of the exile that predict this. For example, the entire chapter of Isaiah 13 is labeled the judgment of Babylon. It pronounces many terrible things that will happen to them because of what they did to Israel. In particular, I'll call our attention to verse 16, which says, their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes, their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. So this language is actually pretty common in the Bible. This is what judgment looks like when the crime is serious. Now, we cannot, we should not, simply repay others what they've done to us. That is not for us to do. But God should. In fact, He must. It is essential to God's goodness that evil would be punished. This is summarized in Romans 12, verse 19, which gives this instruction. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Imagine for a moment what it would be like if we had no expectation that evil would be punished. Imagine if there were just one judge in all of Washington, D.C. This one judge is our only, the only person who can punish people for wrongdoing, okay? And for every criminal defendant that comes before this judge, he just lets them off the hook with no consequences. The results would be many. They would be interesting. Crime would rise. People would take advantage of this system, realizing there's a gigantic loophole. And those of us who are trying to obey the law, those of us who still do that, would see others break it without consequence, and we would think, that's unfair. We would rightly say that there's no more justice in the city. The point is this, there can be no justice without the punishment of evil. There's an important implication for us here one that Pastor T touched on again and again in his series on justice. We should pray that justice would be done. 
And therefore, we should pray that evil would be punished, just not necessarily by us. Many of you who have been following the news this year will have heard of a woman named Rachel Denhollander. She's widely known as having been one of the first public accusers of Larry Nasser, the doctor for the USA Gymnastics Olympic team, who was convicted this year of sexually assaulting multiple girls in his care and sentenced to 175 years in prison. Rachel Denhollander is also a Christian. In an interview with Christianity Today in January, which I recommend you read in full, she was asked this question. She was asked, what does it mean to you that you forgive Larry Nasser?" Uh, because what had been in the news was that in her statement in the courtroom, she had forgiven him. And she replied this, it means I trust in God's justice and I release bitterness and anger and a desire for personal vengeance. It does not mean that I minimize or mitigate or excuse what he has done. It does not mean that I pursue justice on earth any less zealously. It simply means that I release personal vengeance against him, and I trust God's justice, whether he chooses to meet that out purely eternally or both in heaven and on earth. Listen to everything contained in that statement. We do not pursue personal vengeance. In fact, we forgive. We seek reconciliation. But forgiveness without a right orientation toward justice is problematic, even for a Christian. If you read the rest of the article, you'll see that this kind of weak forgiveness theology can become an excuse for all sorts of bad behavior. In Den Hollander's case, it's gotten her shunned by a number of prominent evangelical leaders when she has tried to bring perpetrators of sexual assault inside the church to a similar kind of justice. The response in many of these child abuse cases around the country was, let's handle this internally. Let's seek reconciliation between the victim and the perpetrator. Let's not seek justice in the legal system. The result is a generation of victims silenced by the church. I could give you another example. In our politics, weak forgiveness theology becomes a convenient way to excuse the actions of a political figure or movement that we agree with. When the suggestion is made that a person should be held accountable for immoral or illegal things that they've done in public life, the response becomes some version of, we're all sinners, so we got to forgive this person. This is a distortion of the gospel. It rings just true enough to sound plausible, but make no mistake, it is heresy. Beware of weak forgiveness theology. Don't let it bias you. Don't let it keep you from speaking up about wrongdoing that you see or experience, even if it's inside the church, especially if it's inside the church. Left unchecked, weak forgiveness theology will cause you to show favoritism, to be lenient with some and harsh with others. That is the very definition of injustice. So, even as we seek forgiveness and reconciliation, we must pursue justice to the best of our ability on this earth because that is how we affirm God's justice. And we must pursue justice not only for ourselves but for others. To use Dr. Martin Luther King's famous quote, injustice anywhere is a threat to what? Justice everywhere. 
As Christians, our radar for injustice should be finely tuned. Ours should be the loudest voices speaking out against it wherever we find it. And if Christians are silent in the face of injustice, we are abdicating our witness on behalf of God and Christ. Now, that being said, we have no guarantees in this fallen world that justice will ultimately be done. And that brings me to point number three. God's justice may or may not always happen on this earth, but it will most certainly be fulfilled in heaven. We need only look around us to see that justice doesn't always seem to be done on earth. Wicked people prosper, and people who don't seem to have done anything particularly bad are often the victims of senseless tragedy. Why is that? Well, the Bible tells us that ultimately, the justice God promises is not an earthly justice. The hope we have is not to be vindicated ultimately in this life, but in the next. If you're a Christian, this means you need to be patient sometimes in your calls for justice. If you're not a Christian, I just want to point out one thing here. The only way we can say with a straight face that there is such a thing as justice is if this is true. If it's not, if there is no justice in eternity, then what we have left is merely what we see in this life, the seemingly random fortunes that everyone experiences with the wicked prospering and the good suffering. We have no model for justice, not really, without God. If you wait for the world to deliver justice, you'll be waiting a long time. Now, this is all well and good. I've talked about justice. Hopefully, I've shown that justice is good to be prayed for, and that means we should pray for and desire that the wicked would be punished. But the objection is still there, right? Killing babies? Really? And that brings me to my fourth point. Number four, no earthly judgment we can imagine can compare to eternal judgment. Why use the imagery of a baby being dashed against the rock? It's the worst thing you could imagine. Well, here's the thing. The imagery is there precisely because it's the worst thing we can imagine, because imagination will fail us when we try to understand what God's eternal judgment will be like. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You think the murder of children is bad? It is somehow, unfathomably, incomprehensibly nothing compared to what God has in store for those who are opposed to him in eternity. And all of us are in that category. All of us are imperfect. Our imperfections may feel small at times, but you have to remember, we're being judged by a perfect God. And the gap between us and Him is infinite. So for the punishment to fit the crime, which we've been talking about all sermon, for the punishment to fit the crime, the punishment must be infinite. And that punishment is beyond anything we can imagine. Worse, yes, even than having our children murdered. As the writer of the Hebrews makes clear in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, it is a fearful thing. Some translations say a terrible thing, a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Okay, so um, non-Christians, I think we've reached rock bottom at our journey with you. <laughs> um, 
In the last hour, I've told you that all is not right with the world, that you might be blind to that fact, that you deserve judgment for falling short of God's standard, and that that judgment is worse than the worst thing you can imagine. So if you're still here with us, thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for considering what we've had to say this morning. But we're not going to stay there. Praise the Lord. Praise God for our final point, number five. Judgment is the only thing that makes salvation possible. Judgment is the only thing that makes salvation possible. So the Israelites are captives. Why are they wishing for judgment upon their captors? Yes, I'm sure they're thinking about justice and the idea that justice ought to be done, but there's also a more fundamental reason, so that they could be delivered from their captivity. The two are inseparable. Relief for the oppressed comes only when the oppressor is defeated. As I said before, we know the history. In the end, the prayer of this psalm was answered. Babylon was defeated by the Persian Empire, defeated just as brutally as it had defeated Israel. And in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we can read about how Cyrus, king of Persia, permitted the Jewish exiles and their descendants to return to Jerusalem. Many did. They rebuilt the temple. They celebrated the Passover. However, what you also see from these texts is that the restoration was incomplete. After the exile, Israel would never be quite the same again. They remained subjects of a foreign power in the land that God had given to their ancestors. And over the years, they fell into sin again and again. At the time the psalmist writes this psalm, Israel is still awaiting a complete fulfillment of God's promise. Well, praise God we know how that story ends. Praise God that God's promise is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. He was God himself, but he became a man. He lived a perfect and sinless life, the only perfect life that any human being has ever lived. And then that life ended on the cross. As he was crucified, he was executed in the criminal justice system of the time. The one blameless man who ever lived punished for crimes he did not commit. But as we know, on that cross, something more was happening, something deeper was happening. Jesus was taking upon himself the full wrath and judgment of God, his Father, for the sins of those in the world who would come to trust and believe in him. Notice the important thing here. Justice was still done. Justice was still served. But it was served on Christ. He bore the punishment that was meant for his followers. He experienced the ultimate exile, separation from his Father, so that those of us who repent of our sin and follow Jesus can be spared the same fate. Christians, as you know, he exchanged his life for ours. He became an exile so that our exile might end. And three days later, he was raised and reunited with God, having paid that ultimate price. And we know that God's justice will ultimately be done because he promises that he will return to judge the living and the dead. And those of us who are in Christ will be rescued from the terrible eternal judgment that is to come. What a miracle! 
God is both a just God and a merciful God at the same time. And it is Christ who makes this possible. And so here, friends, here we find the answer to the riddle of this verse. How could the Bible endorse such a terrible thing as the murder of infants? Because God's judgment is much more terrible than that. And that terrible judgment is essential to His justice. How can this in any way be a model for what we think or what we pray? Well, every time we pray John's prayer from the book of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus, we are praying for salvation and restoration, yes. But any prayer for the Lord to come quickly also is a prayer for unmitigated disaster, a permanent, irreversible nakba for everyone else, for the unrepentant. We must accept this. We must consider how it should spur us to action. So Christians, as you pray for Jesus to come, are you sensitive to the implications for everyone else? Do you treat your neighbors as if they are in mortal danger? Is every day of your life a rescue mission for those around you? And non-Christians, you figure this out by now, we're talking about you. You're the ones in mortal danger of suffering, suffering God's judgment. But the good news is this, the God of the universe has made a different path that you can choose. Repent of your sins today, put your trust in the work of Christ on the cross, and devote your life to following Him. And not only will you be spared this judgment, but a whole new redeemed life will begin for you. There's so much more that could be said about this. If you want to know more, please feel free to talk to me or anyone else from this church after service this morning. I'll be right back there by the door. I know all of us would love nothing more than to answer your questions about what this means. One thing we'll tell you, following Christ isn't easy. It's costly. In a way, it's like choosing an exile within the exile of this fallen world but I beg you to consider it. The trade-off is really simple. Lean into your exile now so that you may escape it later. Don't let the world fool you into thinking that you can just get comfortable here. In the end, we must trust in God and God alone to end our exile. I began this morning by asking all of us if we've ever felt like we didn't belong. Hopefully what you've seen today is that none of us really belong. That dissatisfaction you feel with the way things are, that restlessness and longing for something more, on the tip of your tongue but almost impossible to put into words, that sense that good doesn't always or ever seem to win out, that life seems to make no sense, those feelings or how you know you're an exile in this world. We can delude ourselves into thinking we can overcome this, that we can solve the problems of this world with more of the things of this world. But that's all that is, a delusion. We were made in God's image. We were made to be with Him. We were made for more than we could ever dream of or hope for in this world. And for that reason, Every moment of our separation from God is painful to us, whether we understand the cause or not. 
So, let us mourn our exile appropriately. But let us also rejoice that God has made a way out of this exile. Let's rely on Him to hold on to us as we wait for His return. And let us look forward to the day when He will finally bring us home. Let's pray together.